Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Papa's got a brand new bag, and it's the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank James Brown for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone, here in the States. Uh, traditionally, Memorial Day kind of starts the summer, and Labor Day kind of ends it. And what a better conversation to have about the summer of 1986, which was ending 35 years ago. Here we go with my uh, conversation. Before we get to the conversation, I want to invite everyone to join us on Facebook, the Stick to Wrestling podcast group. Uh, Recently, we were discussing Pete Rose, of all things. Mostly, we stick to wrestling, and we'd love for you to be part of the conversation. If you want to follow me on Twitter, where I mostly stick to wrestling, but not 100%, uh, just put in the words John McAdam in the search engine and follow the guy who has Moondog Maine and Don Morocco fighting with chairs. And with that, let's go to part two of the summer of 1986, our discussion with Christian, the Ventura body. Let's do this. Let's move on to the AWA, which has become a minor league promotion. I mean, right. They lost over the past year. They lost Stan Hansen. They lost the Road Warriors. They lost the Freebirds. They lost Rick Martell. Sergeant Slaughter was gone by summer of 1986. Jimmy Garvin was gone. The Irwins were gone. Scott Hall was gone. And they really didn't bring in many new faces to replace them, but they did bring in a new tag team. They created a tag team right. called the Midnight Rockers. And when they first got introduced, I can tell you right now, my friends and I thought they were a complete joke. They were like were a combination of names between the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. They were a complete duplication of the Rock and Roll Express with the trunks and the sunglasses. And these guys could go. I mean, you could just see it. They had great matches. And the best matches they had were against Buddy Rose and Doug Summers, who, I mean, I could just kind of tell, look, these are guys who would never make it in the WWF. And they never did anything after their AWA run. They paired them up with Sherry Martell, and for whatever reason, this feud was magic. Christian, there was never a better time in tag team wrestling in the United States than summer of 1986. We talked about all the great teams in the NWA, the great teams in the WWF. Now we've got two more great teams in the AWA. It was amazing that Vern stumbled into this. And the funny thing is, you're talking about the AWA as a minor league circuit. They arguably had the two best, two of the ten best matches you were going to see on television that year. One was the bloody brawl between these two guys. They had, it was it was in it was in the Showboat Pavilion in Las Vegas, and it was I think it was like, was the end of summer. They had this the first time they were on television. They just brawled all over the building, and it was a bloody mess. And the second one was the Kurt Henning, Nick Bockwinkle um, New Year's Eve match. But it was weird because they people originally laughed at the Midnight Rockers, but in in reality they found their niche. I think the problem with the AWA at that point was that they just didn't they they. Vern didn't know that the business had changed. And we were we're going to repeat this over and over again, but they found one good feud. They had Snooker against De Beers. Don't I don't even want to go into that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was it was so dumb. Like I'm I'm from South Africa and I have slaves. I'm like, dude, you're you're I, like, who are you kidding? You know, it was like it was like if I'm Jimmy Snooker, I'm like I'm reduced to this. 
I headlined Madison Square Garden, and now I'm reduced to this. <laughs> that's, that's two years like, later, he's had, he, two he's, years he's, earlier, he's headlining Madison Square Garden. Now, he's, now he's now he's reduced to refuting with a guy who's dressed in fake battle fatigues. But um, you know, the funny part about Vern is that he had a hot thing with Russell War, Russell Russell War, Russell Rock '86, and then after that, he did nothing. Looking at the AWA, I'm, what in terms of happened with Hanson? What did he want? He wanted to, that was the night he had that big special on ESPN. And Stan Hansen decides he wants them to drop the title of Nick Bockwinkle. Stan Hansen says, you know what? I ain't doing this. And he leaves. Leaves the arena. And it's like, what do, you, what do you guys always hear me talk about when you talk about a title, devaluing it? You just handed your belt to someone because the guy didn't show up or guy just, or he just didn't want to do the finish. It's just, it was one of those situations where I said, I cannot believe this is on ESPN and I cannot believe this is happening. But nonetheless, Vern stumbled into one good feud, rode it for about six months. And it took him for although the, the sight of Larry Nelson in a, in a rocker's vest was a little bit much. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, get ready for the age of the rockers. I'm like, would you please? Um, it was like it's like watching an old guy, you know, where it's like watching Al Bundy wear his varsity jacket thing, saying he scored four touchdowns in a game. It's just like Larry. <laughs> it was a, it was a, you know, or or his facial expression during interviews were priceless when he called. Um, when he, I remember when Jimmy Stucker got piled driven on the concrete. Larry's best like that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. He's like what? You horrible person! I'm just like Larry. Larry Nelson was just he was a poor man's David Crockett, as they say. But and he wasn't really that good that good at that either. But you know, it was just it was awful to watch him on occasion. To but that the Rockers vest to me was just you know yeah it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was just like stop you look silly don't, as long as you don't have on spandex. But the Rocker vest and the sunglasses to me was just. Why are you doing this? <laughs> just just yeah. take it off. I, I, I mean, to me, the AWA, it was Major League in 1985. I mean, you knew the Freebirds, the Road Warriors, uh, Stan Hans, Rick Martell. They would have been mm-hmm. stars anywhere. They would have been stars in the WWF, NWA, etc. Right. Now we know at the, by this point, the AWA is a minor league. You know, all of the anyone who's on that roster is waiting for a call from the NWA, the <laughs> WWF or the Mid-South. WWF. And it's like it, you could be the greatest player for the Iowa Cubs, but as soon as the Chicago Cubs call you, even if you're the last guy on the bench getting three at bats a game, you're going you there. Good. And that's right. that, that was the equivalent of an AWA guy. It's weird because I, they lost so much from 1985 to the, to the beginning of the, of the year. It's just like, what happened? I just don't know. Did Vern alienate them, or was it just a matter of they just, you know, they weren't making money? Wall? That that was part of it, but they were on ESPN. I think at some point you would have been able to keep. Hey, we've got an ESPN television contract. What other promotion could have said? Now, granted, you know the other two. You're on TBS. You're on USC Network. You know Vince has a national syndication. You know NWA's on TBS, and they have a good syndicated deal. But ESPN's got to count for something. I mean, wouldn't doesn't that mean something? I don't know how Vern couldn't translate that into some type of money, but maybe because his promotional aspects were limited because. He's got Minneapolis, Chicago, the Dakotas. I think part of Colorado, he's got Nevada. He doesn't really have the major cities that, you know, the WF is obviously national, but Crockett was going into Philadelphia. He had Atlanta. He had Greensboro. He had parts of Maryland and Virginia, and he's making inroads other places. With Vern, it was, where's your where's your big city? You know, where are you going to have your big event? Minneapolis, okay, but outside of that, what? Where are you going? And uh, he, San Francisco, Denver, Oakland. He, he, he I know, he had, I know he, he, he had some cities, but they weren't drawing. And, I, and the point is, this, if you're going into San Francisco, you're competing with the WWF. If you're going into Denver, you're competing with them. 
you know, at, at that stage, it's somewhat over. Not over, but it's somewhat, they're looking at the cool, you know, they're looking at the cool promotions coming in, and you're, you know, you've got a bunch of 50-year-old men, doesn't work. They've got Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair coming in. You've got Nick Bockwinkle. Do the yeah. math. That, that was another point I wanted to make. I mean, Stan Hansen as world heavyweight champion works. I mean, to me, he's on the level of Flair and Hogan. We'll talk about more about this later, but you know, Rick Rude as world-class heavyweight champion. Yeah, I, I can see that one too. Terry Gordy, absolutely on the same level as Hogan and Flair. Then world-class goes down to Chris Adams. And I guess if you squint your eyes a little bit, you can say, okay, I could see him then, but he's still I, a known I, national name. You know, no, and, and Nick Bockwinkle, same thing. I have nothing but respect for Nick Bockwinkle. He's an all-time great, but he looked old in 1978, never mind 1986. <laughs> that is cold, bro, but I mean, it's <laughs> true. Just, it's, it's, I agree with you, but it's just, it's, my whole point was the way it was done. You want him to drop the hands in the drop, and the hands said, I ain't doing this, I'm out. And it's like. You're on a you're on ESPN on a live event and you hand your belt to somebody and it's almost like Game Seven of the World Series. Well, the other team didn't show up. Oh well, here's your trophy. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to describe what I felt when I saw this. I just went, you know, and I was actually there the night that Hanson beat Martell in the Meadowlands that night, which is a, which is a great show. I was thinking Hanson is going to take it to the next level, but it's it's just that Vern, they're stuck in the past and then there's not wanting to admit that you that you don't know what. what which what you're doing. And Vern was just way too stuck, you know, calling, you know, Bruiser Brody, boom, boom, Brody. Said, I don't care if Dick the Bruiser was there or not. He didn't put a copyright on that dang on name. Okay. Stop it. That's you know, a guy I forgot on that list. Bruiser Brody was a, a major loss. He was there in right. uh, 85 and early 86. And he also disappeared. And the whole thing with Stan Hansen was, look, you know, he had a deal with Baba where he was going to defend the AWA title there. That was an right. important thing. And he was very loyal to Baba. And right beforehand, Vern said, you know, no, and I want the title here in the United States. Lose it to Nick Bockwinkle. And Hanson just walked. And it was one you of those things. Money. You mentioned money. That's probably because he's making more money with Baba, too. Because if, if, yeah. the World Wars have always said Baba paid us well. Ted DiBiase said Baba paid us well. Everybody that went over there to work for All Japan said he paid us. You know, so. We would leave there with a briefcase of cash. We never had to worry about, you know, what we were making from Baba. So I can't blame him. He spent most of the rest of the year in Japan anyway, along with um, Brody and, and DBI. He went over there very frequently, sort of Gordy. They all were like, the payday should tell you what they, what they thought of working with Giant Baba. So I can't blame him for that. And Vern let pride go up before the fall. Nobody else made us think about Japan other than Vern. Vince never let his guys go, but other guys like, you know, Crockett and, and, and Watts and even Jarrett didn't care if his guys went over to Japan. They went, and that was the end of that. That was one reason how Bill Watts managed to keep so many big names in 1986, like DiBiase, like Terry Gordy. It's like, you know, he was, okay, I will let you occasionally go to Japan, right. unlike Crockett, unlike Vince. And mm-hmm. it, it just made a big difference in his talent level. Although Crockett did let the Road Warriors go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he let them go because it was like, look, the road wars were so big. They were like, look, you're not keeping us from going. And right. We don't. The point of the road wars making, look, we really don't need you because if we leave, you're in trouble. The road wars are one of the few talents in this business, history's business, even to this day that I'm speaking, that could basically tell a promoter, we ain't doing that. 
okay? And if you don't like it, trust me, someone else, we will find someone else that likes it and lets us do what we want. So that's when you have the power wielded. That's how you have to look at it. I know at one point the Road Warriors stopped going, either stopped going to Japan or stopped going as frequently. They they came to a contract with Crockett. I right. don't think summer of 1986 that it happened yet. Right. But let's talk about the UWF. They are putting on great television every single week. They have the Freebirds and Eddie Gilbert's crew as the lead heels. On the other side of it, they have uh, Hacksaw Duggan, Ted DiBiase, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Terry Gordy as the lead baby faces, and they have Bill Watts coming out of retirement. And once again, they have a major star, in my opinion, Terry Gordy as the UWF champion. A year earlier, I was saying I think he would have made a great NWA champion. It looked to me like they were flying high, but in reality, they weren't. They kind of, I want to say, stopped drawing, but they weren't drawing as well as they once did. The recession in the oil industry really hit them hard. And, you know, Bill Watts was losing money. And not long after, you know, Bill Watts sold to Jim Crockett. And if he hadn't sold to Crockett, he would have gone out of business. But my point being, you know, optics being, it looked like these guys were doing great summer of 1986. I've beat this drum to my arms have fallen off, and the guys have heard me say this on the podcast and heard me type it in the Facebook group. The best wrestling television program, period, of all time. I don't want to hear about you can You can keep your Raws. You can keep your SmackDowns. If you watch the UWF from April, from the episode we talked about the last time I was on, the Russian flag, to the end of that year, you will not see a better stretch of television, rest, televised wrestling, period. End of discussion. I will argue this with anyone. <laughs> Every week on that show, there was something that left you thinking, damn, how can they do this? And you mentioned the term hot shotting. The reality of it was this. Watts was trying to build on the level of the NWA and the UWF and the rea- WWF. The reality is he had a better syndicated deal, I think, than Crockett did because they were in, I can't speak for Boston. I know you said they were in Boston. They were in Philadelphia. They were in New York on WPIX, which forever was known as the Yankee Station. And they were on, you know, several UHF channels in, in Jersey. They were on that and Power Pro, another excellent sh- point, show that they had. They were great. I, I mean, I was like everybody else when Gordy won the title. I was like, can he really, you know, carry this, that, and the other book? We, he, he showed he could. And you had, it's funny you mentioned the UWF versus World Class. I always talk about, you know, when Ken Mantell, you know, brought in the talent that he brought in. Look at how they were booked in the UWF versus how they were booked in World Class. Axel Duggan comes in, I mean, one-man game comes in. He's a bit player in, you know, in world class. The Von Erichs rule the roost. They don't let people do whatever. First night, one-man game comes in. What does he do? Destroys Jim Duggan, bloodies him up badly, which is still one of the, the craziest things you'll ever see. Beats him up, lets him know, I'm the baddest ass in this area. Y'all going to have to deal with me. The Fantastics were wasted in world class. What do they do? They come in, they win the tag belts, and not only that, have a great feud with the Sheep Herders. Another underrated team. Missy Hyatt comes in. She immediately establishes herself as the Queen Bee, brutalizes Dark Journey. Missing Link comes in. Teams up with Dark Journey. Freebird signed a million-dollar contract. And what does Watts remind people? Oh, they blinded the junkyard dog, as he always would take a shot at Vince's people. Oh, they put Ted DiBiase in the hospital. You know, these guys are badass. Watts was to use a something that will warm your heart, like Bill Belichick. I'm using every aspect of my roster and every aspect of, my, of, of these promotional guys to let you know I have a strong roster and a strong promotion. And from a television standpoint, not, not just to mention Eddie Gilbert, Watts changed on the fly 
better than anybody I could have ever imagined. When he lost the Blade Runners, what does he do? He makes Eddie Gilbert high and hot stuff. Starts that angle. You know, he lo- the Sheep Herders leave. He starts a hot feud with, um, you know, the Fantastic and things like that. Watts changed on the fly better than anybody you'll ever meet. And it's, it's, it's to Watts' credit that he held on as long as he could in terms of um, being able to do things with a lot of vultures beating down his neck and, and making things, you know, as they were. Had he not sold, yeah, like I think Tully said, we would have gone there and picked people off, but it would have just not been, you know, the same type of situation. Well, I don't know if Crockett would have used the guys as well as as Watts did. But anyway, I've been listening to you and not like paying attention to my Facebook. Lou has some corrections uh, that he'd like to throw in. Lou, if you don't mind. Go right ahead. I apologize. Oh, no worries. You know what? One thing I want to throw in really quickly, too. Tyler Judd said it best when we're doing this show, like the, the bullets are flying. And sometimes you have to talk about things, you know, with five or six different fine points and you just might misremember some stuff. So Lou, go right ahead. Okay. Yeah. Just a couple of AWA related corrections. That's probably the first, because that's the, that's the weakest territory in, in terms of my, my base of knowledge <laughs> right. to be blunt. So yeah, just a slight correction. You said boom, boom, Brody. It was actually Boom Boom Bundy. King Kong Bundy was in the AWA for about five seconds. At the time, King Kong Brody was in the AWA, and Bruiser Uh, Brody was known as King Kong Brody in areas where Dick the Bruiser was also there, namely like Kansas City, St. Louis, and the AWA. Got it. Okay. And then with the, uh, the live ESPN show that was from Oakland, Stan Hansen, he defended the title against Jerry Blackwell that night. It went to a double DQ. It was the next night when they were in Denver that Vern told Stan that he was going to drop the belt and Stan walked out. Okay. I stand corrected. I'm glad you, I'm glad you got me on that because I remember I, it had been a while since I'd seen it, but that's that. I'm glad you got me on that one because like I said, the AWA for me was, I was not really paying attention to, to it too much at that point, but you know, when the Rockers came along, when other things came along, I was watching. But it actually was Pro Wrestling USA was on in our area in New York, and that was kind of our our AWA link. Then when the ESPN feed came up, that's when that's when you see the AWA on there on a regular basis. But Pro Wrestling USA, for those that don't remember, was a combination between the AWA and the the NWA. They promoted in the New York area till about April of that year, and then when the the agreement ended. The show went on for about two or three more weeks, and then it stopped. Then the UWF came on and, and replaced it on Channel 11, and or WPIX in, in in New York, and that, that is where is what the station was. No, we got WPIX on on our cable system, and I don't mm-hmm. remember seeing the the UWF. I do remember getting the AWA for I want to say most of the rest of 1986. But man, if, if the UWF was on WPIX and I just missed it, I am officially a, a very unhappy person and i was also very unhappy in i think 87 when we we lost that channel because you know a i like the wrestling and b believe it or not i would watch the yankees because i was a huge ricky henderson fan <laughs> i used to get wsbk on my cable and it stopped so i i'm very familiar with uh the boston stations as well we used to get wsbk and um they used to show, what they show brewing games and occasionally a Celtic game and also some boston college stuff as well so even though we're we're on the opposite sides of the fan spectrum, John, you and I pretty much uh, are both are both sports enthusi- 
It's funny, no matter what happens, New York and Boston were always linked to each other no matter oh, what. Oh, yeah. And you guys usually come <laughs> out on, on the winning end, at least until recently, man. Oh, you had, you had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would like to, if I ever had a lunch with Jim Ross, right, and, and Jim was in a good talkative mood, I would ask him, and you know, not, not in a pointing the finger manner, but in a give me information manner, like, why did the UWF, Mid-South Wrestling, never get on cable? Cable, to me, it looked like they were, cable stations were desperate for content, and UWF was desperate to get on cable. Like, why wouldn't a USA, uh, whatever cable stations out there, USA Network, they were in bed with the, with the WWF, but just any other cable channel, like, why not, instead of ha- running some movie from the 60s at eight o'clock on thursday night why not have uwf wrestling or even midnight saturday you know i i just i never understood why they never had a a strong cable presence which is something you needed by summer of 1986 that's a good question i mean i know watts had a great syndicated network because he got on in major markets but in terms of cable television we have to think about 1986 yeah things are expanding but the market is still kind of limited from this standpoint You've got TBS, you've got USA. I'm trying to think of another, I mean, could they have gone to ESPN? Maybe, maybe Sports Channel America, because I know and they, maybe they could have reached out to them because Florida Wrestling was on that. Somehow Florida Wrestling was on you know, Sports Channel America and things like that. And I know Continental had um, wound up on there a little bit um, in the end of 87, but I don't know. To me, it was like if their television product got on there, I don't think they would have had the financial issues they might have had. I don't think I'm being naive about that either. But, you know, there, maybe their reason was just so hit. Again, people, you talked about the oil crunch. People forget the Cowboys and other sports teams were struggling to draw during that period of time. If you watch some of those games, there's a lot of empty seats in those stadiums. And it has very little to do with the performance of the team. It's the fact that that area was hit real hard with job loss. And it's... You know, the UWF to me, that's the greatest mystery in the world. I mean, I, I, you talk about cable when they you, when they got on with Crockett. I would have put them on eleven o'clock Saturday morning on TBS instead of rerunning, you know, their super bouts or whatever they called it. But Jim Ross did what he could. He got them on in a lot of key spots in a lot of key areas. But ultimately, looking back at how they kind of hot shot themselves to death because by the end of that year, that group had to be exhausted because every week they were putting on. You know, a great performance on television every single week. I can only imagine what they were dealing with from an arena standpoint and not really having the widespread areas to go like maybe a Crockett or events, you know, going to bigger cities like Philadelphia and things like that or Atlanta. So it's one of the great sad points that we'll never be able to get past, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And, you know, as you were speaking, I kind of I asked my question. I, I might have answered it. Um, I remember Jerry Lawler talking about how in 1988, the Memphis CWA promotion tried to get on the Nashville network and he had a meeting set up at their, their headquarters and Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett walk in the office. He, and the guy says, you know, the programming director, I think says, you know, I'm willing to listen to you guys, but no matter what, I'm not putting wrestling on the Nashville network and Lawler and and Jarrett kind of look at each other. And Lawler says, well, if you're not going to put it on, there's no point in me making a presentation. And they walked out. So maybe that was it. They, you know, the, the cable companies just didn't want pro wrestling. That's kind of, well, the ratings would have told them otherwise. Because yeah. USA is drawing big numbers. TBS is drawing big numbers. It, it it's almost like nowadays everything, everyone has a streaming service. 
Well, back then, you know, first of all, it was, it was an easy sell. It's an hour of easy programming that's going to draw a rating. Why are you fighting this and not wanting it on your channel? It's almost like if the NFL came to you and said, well, we want to put some games on your network, are you going to say no? <laughs> Absolutely not. We've right. seen television networks, you know, dump programming just to put an NFL game on. And it's not as if Watts didn't have an appealing product. So had, had he watched it, it's almost naive to think back in 19, not naive, how many cable networks or programs were, or, or were out there really at that point in time? TBS, USA, you know, ESPN maybe, but there wasn't a TNT like it is now or, um, you know, so many other things like NBC Sports and things like that. It almost makes you wish that that type of outlet existed back then. But, you know, maybe looking back at it now, it just wasn't meant to be. And it was, it was maybe in reality, there was an oversaturation of the market for a lot of wrestling to begin with because you had so many um, – promotions out there at that time trying to vie for airspace that inevitably some people are going to get lost in the crunch. And the fact that the ADBA had a national outlet and Bill Watts couldn't, that's kind of one of the great shames of, of all time, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I remember our cable company had 30 or 40 channels and you know we only had like seven local channels, including PBS. So th- there had to be other cable channels. I just don't know what they are. And I know they're not going to put wrestling on the weather channel but they had to have something but like i said maybe I they they just didn't want wrestling it was i don't know but anyway um it's our loss. yeah it really was world-class championship wrestling in 1986 we touched upon them a little bit they are falling off a cliff as we noted they lost a ton of talent to mid-south wrestling i mean we're talking the Freebirds, john tatum missy hyatt one man gang, etc. Skandor Akbar, uh, he was already gone. But Iceman, Iceman, yes. Chris Adams, they all left. I mean, the funny part is, last year during the pandemic, when I said I was scrolling through DVDs I hadn't looked at yet, I actually ran across some world class after you know the Parade of Champions when the Freebirds left. And I remember looking through the summer; they still had Rude, they had Mike Von Erich coming back. The problem is, we've all heard this before. They built everything around the Von Erichs, and unfortunately. You know, when you build everything around one group, it's almost like building everything on your defense. And when your defense falls apart, what happens? You're not going to be successful. Like you said, Skander Akbar, you said in an interview, the, the Von Erichs were the dragon slayers. They slayed the dragon. You built everything around them. You never gave anybody else any shine. Jim Cornette said when he was there with the Midnight Express, you know, we were feuding with the Fantastics, but we would have these great matches, but nobody cared. So it was almost like when Kerry got hurt, and that's, you know, that's the one thing we never talk about enough, is what his loss did and what he ended up meaning to uh, the promotion. It was almost comical to watch him talk about it in, in October. Kerry will be back soon. I'm like, Kerry doesn't have a foot. You know, <laughs> you didn't know it back then, but it's like they kept talking about, well, Kerry will be back and Kerry will be back. When they lost all that talent, and then we didn't even mention Gino Hernandez passing away, they were pretty much up the creek, and they had nothing else left to really promote and show and, and, and try to build around. But ultimately, they also were a victim of the oil crunch, too. If you watch the Sportatorium and the Will Rogers Coliseum in Fort Worth, they're basically hemorrhaging fans. And it was, you know, Texas really kind of dried up. Even the Sam Houston Coliseum wasn't drawing what it once did for Paul Bosch. So World Class to me was a situation where if Fritz could have sold, he probably would have. But what would you have been buying? They were really depleted by looking at the cotton mill cards and stuff like that And during the summer. It's bad. I mean, when, when Rick Root is your champion and he leaves and you go – then you end up with Chris Adams leaving, you end up with Black Bart. You know you've kind of hit you know, rock bottom. And we didn't realize it was going to get worse in 87, but it was, it was careening towards the bottom of the ditch rapidly by the time um, you know, 
Rude and all those other guys and everybody else left and went for Green Ambassadors. I, I agree totally. I mean, I feel like I've beaten up Black Bart too many times on this show. It, it's not his <laughs> fault they made him World's Heavyweight Champion. But, I mean, you turn on one channel. They've got Hulk Hogan as their World's Heavyweight Champion. Another right. channel has Terry Gordy. Another channel has Ric Flair. The other channel has Nick Bockwinkle. Okay, he's not what he once was, but he's a legend. He's still and you've got Black Bart. And then you have Kevin Von Erich, who's hurt 90% of the time. It was almost kind of comical, like, looking at them trying to, you know, make... I just don't know. Maybe someone... The, the problem is, just, remember, they left the NWA. They said, we don't want to have Flair come down there anymore. That is a huge problem right then and there. You don't have a major draw. And you said putting Rick Rude as champion. Okay, that kind of worked. They did pretty well at the Parade of Champions, and they did they drew pretty well throughout the summer. But Kerry's accident really... Losing, you know, Gino dying is one thing, but losing Kerry, losing the talent they lost to Watts, you know, their syndicated deal still was on. They were on the MSG network in the New York area. They just didn't have the horses that the other people had. And again, as it was proven, even when Kerry came back the following year, he was a shell of himself. And they had no original ideas at all. I've never seen something die as quickly as they did from like middle of 85 to the middle of to the end of that the following year in 1986. They just dropped dead. And it's horrible to say, but it's the truth. They kind of did it to themselves is the best way I could, I could say it because they shot up like a Roman candle, had too much too soon, and then ultimately burned out. A couple of things. I mean, I for decades, I had said when they shaved Junior Hernandez and Chris Adams' head, that was the end of world-class championship wrestling. And I, I have amended that. Not really. They were still pretty strong through the 86 mm. Parade of Champions. But after that, after Kerry had the accident, they lost all that right. talent. They were stuck. I mean, now I said it about the AWA. World-class championship wrestling is now a minor league promotion. Everyone mm. there is either a Von Eric, so they're not leaving. There's someone who is, is rising in the rankings, like Rick Rude, or there's or someone that no Warrior. one else wants, like Buzz Sawyer, Matt Bourne. Yeah, those guys had talent. But there were reasons that they weren't in Crockett or, or Watts or whatever. What if in terms of Buzz Sawyer, what, when he went back there, what, what did he do to Watts that made him so angry? Because he, he was well respected by Watts, but he ended up um, you know, kind of making him angry. He was the TV champion, and the next thing you know, he's gone. I guess, did, did he make Watts mad? And he, just said, he just said, all right, you're out. That was, that was kind of it. You know, I, I have never heard anything specific about Watts or Sawyer, but I, I know two things. Number one, Sawyer left right around the time Dick Slater did, and Slater right. was the booker, and Slater liked Sawyer. And we've all heard the Buzz Sawyer stories. I mean, there's a reason he burned out of wrestling. He couldn't keep mm -hmm. jobs, et cetera. So maybe Watts just said, I've had enough of this guy. And without Slater around to keep him somewhat under control, they just cut him loose. Right. But it seems that everyone associated with world-class burns out one way or the other. But world-class, it's almost sad to see. They still drew 25000 I think, for the parade of champions but mm -hmm. by the time they get to the cotton bowl it just looks it's empty it's dead it's dank i mean and it's not just that i like i said look at the attendance of, of cowboys games and look at what was going on in texas and the oil states at that time i used to think they were overstating it but someone brought that to my attention they said they, oklahoma sooners didn't sell out games they said that year so watts is kind of on to something maybe they chose entertainment but the entertainment they chose was not to spend it on wrestling but then that and that's a sad thing as well uh, you know what? People talk about that in the entertainment industry. Like if there's a depression, you know, people want to be distracted. They spend money on entertainment. If you're living in your car, you're not buying wrestling tickets. That's the, that's <laughs> the end. 
Or if you got to choose between wrestling tickets and food, you're choosing food. Yeah. Like that's, the, that's the way you have to look at it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I get it. You know, when things are bad, people want distractions, but they'll, they'll go to the movies. They'll spend $3 on a ticket to the movies as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, $12 on a wrestling ticket. Championship Wrestling from Florida. I got this on cable through Sports Channel, summer of 1986. They had a mega talent in Barry Windham. They had a rising star in Lex Luger, and that's kind of it. They had Kevin Sullivan, definitely talented, but he'd been in Florida uh, doing his Satan act for like four years. They had guys like Ron Bass, who was good, but you can see you know why like he wouldn't be a star in the WWF or the NWA but he's a star in Florida it looked like a promotion that was going out of business i'd seen those promotions before and yeah and you could just tell like they, you know this was going south then they lose Barry Windham in the fall of 1986 they lose Lex Luger February ish 1987 and you could tell this thing was just going to die and and Ironically, I mean, we're talking about 1987 here, but uh, Crockett sends in help. He sends in, you know, occasionally the horseman would be there, Dusty would be there, et cetera. And then I remember the week after the Saturday after Starcade 87, it was no longer on Sports Channel. So what I'm saying is summer of 1986 was they were in the middle of the end. I think that's fair to say. They were. I mean, the, the ironic part about it was that Dusty brought in two guys that were basically stylistically like Magnum T.A. Wyndham was his, his superior in the ring. I'll, I'll argue that till, till forever. Wyndham and Magnum, to me, are the similar type of babyface. The good-looking guy can go in the ring, but Wyndham is superior in the ring. I think Magnum had more in terms of charisma, but Luger, Luger and Wyndham, to me, were kind of like the same package to replace one guy. Um, Luger came in, I think, like January, actually around that year, because he said he wanted to be um, an associate of the horsemen and things like that, but Florida being going down was really sad because when you think of all the great promoters that got trained there, Watt, Jarrett, Roy Shires, you know, Dusty, they all learned under Eddie Graham there and took his teachings and really helped other areas blossom and grow. Watching that go down and watching that decline was very sad because for those fans that aren't listening that don't know, Florida is arguably, not arguably, is the, one of the most important territories in the history of this business. And it, it gave so much to the industry from Dusty to Dick Murdoch to Eddie Graham to there's not a single person in this business who was worth anything that did not work Florida in one point in time and worked it for a long period of time. Some of the biggest talents in this business cut their teeth in that area. You know, from Dusty to, to uh, I mentioned Dusty, you can rattle off the names, Wahoo, the Von Ericks, Freebirds. They were well-known. Lawler, they all went down there and worked. To Hogan. Learn under Eddie, Hogan, exactly. They all went down there to learn under Eddie Graham and learn from him and, and learn how to put it this way. If you couldn't draw in Florida, you weren't going to draw in the business period. So that, I mean, in Florida really was a hot territory from about from the seventies all the way up into 85, 86. And, you know, it, it gave so much to the industry and the fact that it was gone and that it was kind of, you know, declining badly. That's what makes it really sad, but they gave us a lot. And, you know, the, the, the memories are on tape, but 86 was kind of the beginning of the end where it was going to, it was, you know, the sharks were circling, the chum was in the water and the sharks were circling. It's like, we're going to pick off what we want and if nothing's left, not our problem. But it's sad to see that happen. It really was. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talked about it becoming a minor league promotion. I'm not saying that to, you know, denigrate the promotion. It was just reality. I mean, reality. I would tune in that show. I remember it was on Tuesday nights and, 
when it came on, I would be like, why? What is Barry Windham doing here? I mean, that, and that's kind of sad to say. It's like, you know, why is he here in the minor leagues? I knew why he was, wasn't in the WWF, but why wasn't he either wrestling for Watts or wrestling for Crockett? It, it made no sense to me. And it, it just turns out that Barry wanted to take it easy for a little while. But I mean, that that's the thing. He he looked so major league compared to the rest of the promotion. And that's sad to say about Florida because I got it on cable in 80, 80 and 81. And I loved it. It was the highlight of my week. It was I, the battle of the belts that year. You could almost see the quality drop off from the second battle of the belts to the, on um, the third. Yes. And the second one was Wyndham flair. One of the best matches. I think it was match of the year in the observer. And it's really, it was one of the, it was one of the uh, it's, it's one of the best Wyndham flair matches I've ever seen which is weird because they've had so many good ones. And then you had Luger Flair at the, at the third one. I remember that was Labor Day. It was Labor Day, I think it was, because the reason I remember it was Sports Channel America is because it was on, the, they used to, I said Sports Channel ran the Mets. And the Mets, this is interesting trivia enough for you, the Mets that weekend were playing two exhibition games against the Boston Red Sox, a preview of the 86 World Series. They, <laughs> they were playing them that weekend, and they aired it, and then the Battle of the Belts came on right after that. So that's um, that was my remembering of them showing the games around at four o'clock and Battle of the Belts is at eight, and that was you know it was a good show, but you could tell that there there were some things on there that it looked well produced. I will always say that, but yes. they, um, you could tell it was almost like another video company was producing it because they sure as heck weren't getting that out of Florida. But they um, they they tried their best. They gave us a lot of great things, but they gave us Luger and Wyndham, who were contrib- who were massive contributors to this industry. And so many other people, but that was they were circling the drain at that point. I hate to use that analogy because because it's the truth. They were really down at that point. They totally were. I mean, the first battle of the belts, you had Ric Flair against Wahoo McDaniel. You had the Road Warriors. You had Stan Hansen. You had uh, Brody, whoever else. I'm forgetting it. Barry Windham and Rick Martel was supposed to be there, yep. but there was a, a legit hurricane. And yep. you know now you've got. You know, who was on Battle of the Belts 3? I mean, Barry Windham and Ron Bass. You had the Luger Flair match with a screwy finish. Uh, the Road Warriors Shock made a, a special appearance. And then you've got guys like Kendall Windham, Chris Champion, Kendo Nagasaki, etc. So you're right. There definitely was a noticeable drop of talent between Labor Day 85 and Labor Day 86. I remember, you know, when, when Florida was dying, it had that, you know, Georgia championship wrestling in 1985 feel to it. Right. And it was sad because, like I said, it meant a lot to a lot of people and it gave a lot. It, a lot of the great teachers of our business, of this business, not our business, but the business, were taught there. And they wound up, you know, the nature of the beast changed when Vince went national and it was a dog eat dog world at that point. But sadly enough, you know, it's a lot of great areas were gone. And I mean, 86 to me was sort of like the end of it because. That was the one year where you had every week you had a quality product on television. At that point, everything started getting geared towards pay-per-view. And, you know, that's another story for another time. Because every single week you could turn on television and see something good on there, whether it's a title match or just an angle or something. But after that, the business changed with everything. Everything became geared towards the big blow-off, the big pay-per-view and things like that. And so, sadly enough, it's the one year that I go back to quite a bit to look at. And it's not that 87 or any other year was bad. It's just that there was more quality in that year, in that summer than you're ever going to see. I mean, I agree that this was the last great summer of wrestling. I mean, by the summer of 1987, you know, obviously Mid-South slash UWF wrestling was gone. 
Florida had looked like it had been annexed by the NWA. World class was absolutely horrible in, in 1987, and mm-hmm. the NWA really was struggling. Now, I don't want to say by summer of 1987, but things started to really feel stale by summer of 87, and the WWF had clearly taken over as the number one promotion, which it really hadn't in 1986, but 1987, they were the clear number one. People were asking me stuff like, you know, when is Ric Flair, Lex Luger, the Road Warriors, when are they going to the WWF? That was kind of odd, because, I mean, 87 Crockett had some good stuff with the Wargames and things like that, but I think his problem was, I mean, this needs to be a podcast of his own topic. Crockett often acted like he was a, a regional promotion that was national. It's like, you felt like saying, if I wish someone had come in and just said, look, I'm going to buy this from you and we're going to do what we need to do. Because he kept, he just believed in the smaller way of doing things. Like, you're on television, a, a major cable network, Jim. What are you doing? But, you know, that's another topic for another time. But, but yeah, I think WrestleMania 3 was the accelerant that pretty much put Vince past everyone. And, or at least in the public's mind. But for those of us that watched the business, we knew there was other things to look at. But, you know, Vince was clearly moving ahead for his plans of world domination. And pretty soon he was going to have, you know, all the, uh, the, the turf to himself, so to speak. You know, and getting off the topic that we've been talking about the entire time, and, and Christian, uh, one last note. Wow, the summer of 1986 was 35 years ago. We are old, but anyway. Yes, we are. When I saw the Top Gun Maverick trailer, I said, holy crap, I'm old. I, said, <laughs> I, remember, I remember seeing Top Gun thinking, I remember spending the entire summer in that theater watching Top Gun over and over again. That and oh, no way. Was day off. I was like, God, I'm old. I was like, dude, we're, a friend of mine said, how do you feel? I said, ancient but you know we're still here and we're still breathing that's important that that is important uh we're recording this august 22nd and by the time this comes out it's going to be like the first thursday in september but i got an email from someone yesterday who knows what they're talking about says wwe they're they're for sale and if that happens there's going to be major changes in this business it's going to be interesting the tape library, if I, if I, I would sell my soul for the tape library. I could care less about anything else. Just that, that tape library, all of us who were fans of this business were like, God damn, he has everything now. It's like, we want, you know, like what we talked about last time, the music and stuff like that. Like, just give us the tape library. Vince, keep your, all your crap. Just yeah. Give the tape library to the people, you know, so we can get what we, what we want, you know. But that's another question I'm going to ask. People, holy grail matches that people want to see, but there's just so much... There has to be so much hidden in there that we can possibly look at and things like that. But, you know, it's going to be interesting if that's for sale. And drop that nugget out there and see what people say. It's going to be interesting what the, the, the terminology is or what that, what happens. Because Vince doesn't want to stay around forever. And I don't know if Stephanie and uh, Triple H have the um, the desire to actually run the promotion. So we'll see. Triple H might, but Stephanie might just say, this is not what I want to hang my hat on. No, I can see them wanting to do something else with their lives. It, it, it's that simple. But I will say this. Last night, I watched SummerSlam, and it was the, one of the best WWE live events ever. It was a really good show. I can tell by the chat that the guys were digging it, but you know, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. So um, I might have to check it out. It was funny because I, I listened to the podcast of you and Brandon talking about SummerSlam 91, and that was 30 years ago. I was going into my freshman year in Syracuse, and I had just seen Flair with Bobby Heenan's belt, and like my heart just sank. <laughs> I was just like, no. Not 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 this, <laughs> but it happens. So, yeah, I, that, that's one of those things I enjoyed, like getting the scoop per se on some things. Like I knew that was coming, but you lose, did, but... 
you, you lose the surprise by being a fan. Like, um, I was told that the original Midnight Express and Paulie Dangerously were going to attack Jim Cornette, Bobby Eaton, and Stan Lane. And while, as it was happening, I'm like, man, I wish I didn't know this was coming. I'm, I glad, I'm glad I didn't know because that was one of the great surprises I've ever seen, especially when you hear Cornette. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I mean, it worked really well. It's, Cornette showed his brilliance by just becoming a heel, to, going from a heel to a face in one promo. But, you know. One of the funniest things ever on wrestling, I thought, during that angle, Tony Schiavone's like, Jim Cornette, you have you have an important phone call you have a coming. Phone call. What? And, and Cornette's you like, can't you do this during the Russian assassins? He's like, you're the two of you are losers and you're geeks. Click and he hangs up. <laughs> and I just remember seeing that and it was like the great thing about that interview afterwards is when he said, I have done all this rotten shit in the NWA. And you know what? I've deserved it. Get my ass kicked. But if anyone's gonna be around here, it's gonna be me and that you. Like, he was basically this is my turf, and I thought that was really cool. But this has been it a blast, was. John. It's always great to talk to you and Lou. Be safe. And, you know, <laughs> it was great reminiscing about stuff that I'm probably going to watch the next week when I'm on vacation. <laughs> that sounds good. No, it was, great. it was a great show. Thank you for coming on. We're going to do this again soon. I okay. also want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does making this podcast sound good. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 